0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. What's so important here is the style of writing of peril we're going to get them on in a moment but Lisa, Bob Woodward with 14 bestsellers, there is a method to his madness.
1: And it really highlights the different dynamic that marks Washington, D.C. And I'm talking about that with President Trump, which he talks about, but also going forward to the Biden administration and what they face <clears throat> going forward. There is a new frustration with the status quo. It's got incredible urgency. Absolutely. But the division here lies in what solves it. Do you grind away at sort of the old, uh, in, you know, the old establishments or do you just sit right. down and say, I'm not going to move until it all comes down.
0: Robert Costa out of Notre Dame holding court in Cambridge where Dr. L. Arian is and with him is Bob Woodward and they have teamed up for Peril. You've seen it out on all sorts of media we're thrilled they could join us uh, this morning. Bob Woodward, why did you pick Robert Costa? You could have picked anybody in politics. Why did you pick Young Costa?
2: Because Young Costa is the best reporter I've ever seen and uh, his work ethic uh, makes mine look week. Uh, he just threw himself into this uh, years working at the post. He understands the Republican party, understands Washington uh, like no one. Uh, he taught me a great deal. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, uh, you know, one. It, it, I was saying to somebody, said, well, who did most of the work? And I said, actually, uh, we each did 60%. Uh, It's the kind of partnership where uh, everyone overperforms, and uh, I think overperformance for him is just a natural state.
0: Well, congratulations on the book, and folks, again, this is Woodward and Costa, and Bob Woodward with the courage at 78 to say— I'm going to go out and find somebody to do this with me. Robert Costa, the immediacy of the book is stunning. You've done loads of interviews on The Look Back. I don't want to do that. I want to talk about the future. And, Robert Costa, you end your book by saying the peril remains. What do you mean by that?
3: Well, I I couldn't have a better reporting partner in Bob Woodward. He has taught me so much. And to that question about peril remains – Uh, that's a theme that runs throughout the book. And it's built not just, it's not an opinion, it's based on reporting, and that's the Woodward method. Tell the story of American politics, American democracy through scenes. And you see at the end of our book, President Trump's out there on the political campaign trail. He has a warlike cadence in some of these speeches saying we will never surrender, never give in when it comes to conceding the 2020 election. He's demanding a comeback.
0: You know, Robert Costa, I'm going to look at what we see with Greg Grandin in The Great American Myth, looking at Jacksonian history and how it folds over to the GOP. Robert Costa, what kind of Republican Party do you perceive in 2024? A Republican Party
3: riven by divisions. Uh, You see in our book, someone like Leader McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader, wants to move on. But so many people inside the GOP on Capitol Hill and beyond believe President Trump still has political capital. And so his decision on 2024 will really dominate where this party goes at this point. But there's competition. Vice President Pence, a complicated political figure, as our book shows, he may want to have his own say, his own bid. And there are other stars out there. But President Trump he remains the the, the political uh, force inside the GOP.
1: There's a question right now, Bob Woodard, of what the current administration is facing in terms of getting a Washington back to a semblance of what is considered or was considered normal. Considering all of your coverage backs in the Nixonian days, how dysfunctional is today's government based on some of the changes and the upheavals that we've seen over the past number of years?
2: Well, that's an important question. I mean, it it continues. Uh, our point here is that Trump triggered a national security crisis that we didn't know about was a secret during the transition from Trump to Biden. And uh, as Costa says, look, everything is peril. And uh, if we look at Biden right now, he's got immense problems with Afghanistan with the virus, and uh, he's trying to work out some sort of legislation to get his program through, and he's running into some obstacles in his own party, in the Democratic Party. He's supposed to be the leader and say, uh, okay, everyone do this, but that's not the way Washington works, and uh, maybe it's inevitable that people are going to be outliers, people, uh, the Senator uh, Manchin, Senator uh, Sisma, uh, that they are going to just say, we're not going to march to somebody else's vision. We've got our own.
1: Which really raises a question about this new dynamic, this new increasing frustration about a dysfunctional Washington and how you go about handling it. And Bob, I just want to know if you think of there's any precedent in terms of a group just saying, we are not going to work with the establishment, period, full stop, unless we get everything we want, which seems to be an increasing fringe on both sides of the aisle, both Democrats and Republicans.
2: Well, there are precedents. Uh, presidents, uh, President Clinton had a hard time getting his plan through. It it, it was a squeaker until the end. So uh, we, we are going to see. But the debate in Washington, as you well know, always uh, one of them is about taxing and spending, how much spending, how much taxing. And uh, Biden has gone for uh, the, the everything, 3.5 trillion dollars is a big spending package and uh we're we're going to see and if you talk to people i mean costa knows this better than anyone there's a lot of uncertainty out there Mm -hmm. and there is a lot of peril if i may use that phrase about where this goes does the democratic party come apart
0: On Bloomberg Radio, on Bloomberg Television Worldwide, we welcome you. Robert Costa and Bob Woodward with us, in effort of peril. Can't say enough about it. Once again, after 14 bestsellers, Bob Woodward on deep background, as they say. Robert Costa, page 201 of peril, to me is everything about the future of the GOP. Mike Lee of Utah, born in Arizona, wants to sit at Barry Goldwater's desk. There was a time of peril in 1964. I lived it as a kid. This peril here, how do you perceive it worked out across both parties? Uh,
3: the, the Mike Lee example, the senator from Utah, is such a, a prism into the GOP right now. He was presented with the Eastman memo. Conservative lawyer John Eastman presents this memo to Senator Lee uh, based on our reporting. About throwing out some electors uh, on January 6th, about searching for alternate electors that may be out there in the States. And Lee, uh, long story short, finds this is not the case. He does a lot of reporting on his own to probe the Eastman memo, and he finds there's no such thing as alternate electors out there. But this memo and John Eastman, they were in the the Oval Office, our book shows, on January 4th, two days before the insurrection. This right. was not just some memo or some fantasy. This was something that was actively going on. Pay attention, Woodward always tells me, to the action. Where, What are people doing and saying?
0: I look, Robert Costa, and I can go to your time at Cambridge where I believe you efforted the fractious career of Winston Churchill. Let's swing to the Democrats right now and look at their peril. I would suggest, Robert Costa, that these Democrats are remembered only by Bob Woodward in Washington, back pre-Obama back pre-clinton is this fractious democratic party now like way back or is it something new there's a scene in the book where biden looks up president biden looks up at a
3: a portrait of fdr and he says this is a time for that kind of transformational change what you really see in the democratic party in our reporting is while biden won the presidency bernie sanders and his progressive movement have won power they are in alignment with biden Sanders made the decision in April and May of 2020 to work with Biden rather than against him. And you see Biden moving to the left on his $1.9 trillion rescue plan, which we detail in the book, and even now on this massive plan he's proposing, and that's currently on the rocks on Capitol Hill. Biden's not moving towards the center and trying to be the guy cutting a deal with Mitch McConnell. And that dynamic continues. He wants to have a progressive legacy, even though he's known as moderate Joe Biden from Delaware.
1: Bob, just taking a step back, when you look at all the reporting that you did for Peril, what's your big takeaway in the new nature of the United States democracy in this new, very fractious era?
2: Well, that it's being tested and stretched by both parties. And I remember talking with President Trump when he was in office in 2019, going into the Oval Office and uh, saying that the old order in both parties Republican and Democratic, uh, is changing, is evaporating. uh, And uh, he just, he said, yes. And I said, "Uh, it looks like you seized history's clock in 2016. And he just jumped in his chair behind the resolute desk saying, yes, I'll, I'll do it again, talking about 2020 coming up. And of course, he didn't. He lost. But the big Trump theme now is the election was stolen. Uh, We dug into this as much as you can, and we found these memos and this documentation that the biggest Trump supporters realized there was no stolen election. What is Trump running on? Essentially, his campaign is, well, they stole it in 2020, though there's no evidence, and uh, somehow, I can run in mm-hmm. 2024 and and get it back. Uh, what I, the average voter sits and looks at all of this. What does it mean to them? Who's going to offer a better life and a better program? That should be the issue. Uh, right. Maybe that will surface in all of this.
0: We have to uh, continue on this, folks, with another one hour conversation with Robert Costa and Bob Woodard. It is peril. Highly readable. It's a classic Woodward, shocking deep background effect. It opens with General Miley, I might point out, as well. And, of course, it is a look past as Woodward and Costa look to the future of our nation's politics.
4: Jordan Rochester joins us next. Nomura, G10, FX strategist. i going to be best. there. He will be there for Spurs Villa. This weekend, I'm not sure what that's got to do when it comes to pandas or anything. Jordan, hello. Great to have you with us. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Let's start with Sterling, Jordan. That has become really, really unpredictable, hard to trade. And I know you're scratching your head. And I've read your note earlier this week. You've been really transparent, open, honest. You don't have a clue either. What are people saying to you?
5: John, I think it's, we've gone back to the old ways of looking at the pounds. Even though it's not Brexit, we're not talking about Theresa May giving a press conference, Boris Johnson doing this. None of that Houses of Parliament stuff. But we're looking at Sterling with an inflation premium view. What's that about? Well, we've got this fuel crisis, pay, petrol. People are struggling to get petrol in their cars. The UK is highly exposed to this gas crisis that's taking place in European energy markets. We're seeing the price of energy in the UK, just like the rest of Europe, spiralling quite a lot higher. But the one thing that has really made it really difficult for us all, John, is we priced in banking and rate hikes. There's three rate hikes priced for next year, the pound's lower. So it tells me we've got to adopt the old sort of framework, which is keep an eye out for UK inflation expectations. If they keep rising, if energy prices keep rising, that's going to weigh on the pound.
4: Jordan, I'm going to ask a question, and I need to be a, a little bit open about this because I'll get a lot of hate mail. This is not my view before everyone starts sending me hate mail. Is this trading like an em currency now jordan
5: yeah it's the question you always get asked it's trading like a developed currency that's having an inflation problem um and emerging markets typically have higher rates of inflation so yes in that respect it's trading like an em currency because we're focusing on that inflation metrics but it's still one of the reserve currencies of the world outside the dollar so we're not going to go too far and say it's untradeable you can definitely trade it it's just very unpredictable
0: Jordan, Tom King, good morning to you as well. Is this a regime shift? Jim Bullard talks about a regime shift. Do we finally have a some dollar giving us a big figure move, kind of milieu for Q4? Is it a time to make big figures?
5: I think it is, Tom. We've had months now of euro dollar, for example, being in a very tight range throughout the summer. And I think as folks have gone back to the office, as we've gone back to work in September, it's kind of woken everybody up to the risks that were building up over that summer period and euro dollar has been in a range and we've had leverage so the hedge funding community have been short the euro but not the real money community tom so what i've been saying to clients is i think euro is having its yen moment If you think back to q1 this year when u.s rates moved higher after the georgia senate race results the real money community threw in the towel and all their dollar shorts against the yen they went long dollar yen they didn't do the same in euro the european reopening story was still very attractive, and we had ETF flows into Europe. But that, for the FX, that hasn't worked. And now we've broken below one sixteen, which is the line in the sand for me. I think this is regime change, Tom. And we're looking for one fourteen in the euro against the dollar.
1: All right, that's the short term. But Jordan, you do see uh, the euro going back to one twenty two versus the dollar, I believe. I believe that that was your call. Can you talk about the path to get there and how the ECB responds to some of the inflationary inputs, even though they call them transitory?
5: Absolutely. Yeah. The, the dollar view is still predicated on a global recovery. But right now we're going through a slowdown. The data, the surveys are all slowing down. So that's why we're talking about dollar strength right here and now. If we get into the sort of Q1 next year, we'll have hopefully have priced in quite a lot of that slowdown. And then we'll start to focus on the positives again. The European uh, mobility data is fantastic. The return to work in Europe has been much stronger than it actually has been in the U.S., according to the Google, the a- Apple data and every other statistics we look at for. So that means maybe there's a European outperformance story next year. And also by December, we might have got the German coalition to announce the policies they will actually do, whichever coalition is actually formed. Maybe the market focuses on those growth numbers. And that could boost euro again. But for the ECB, they've got the same situation for the UK. Energy prices are going up. They're actually nearly double more important for European inflation, 9.5% of inflation basket in euro is energy. So energy costs rising is a big deal for their actual inflation forecast, but they'll be able to rest on the fact they've had a decade of low inflation. So the idea of them raising rates next year or the year after is very low. But for markets, what we'll be looking at is that 2024, there's already one rate hike priced in for the ECB by 2024. That's the end of it. So do we see the ECB raise rates in 2024? Wait, hold on a second. Three years away.
1: I have to to really raise a question about this because central bankers have broadly said that energy prices are not something that they look at for core inflation. That isn't going to necessarily bleed into their view in terms of whether to raise rates since it has factors that go beyond monetary policy. Why is this time different?
5: This time is different because we've just had a record fiscal stimulus in Europe and the U.S., And also, we're having massive supply chain uh, problems. So it isn't going to be just energy. It's going to be a lot of other parts of the CPI basket are going up. And the main thing for me is look at those consumer inflation expectations. They're not falling. They're rising. Uh, They're rising slowly. But over time, as energy prices feed through to people's uh, budgets, when they see the price of their electricity bills, when they start to go to the shop and see food and and clothing going up, they'll start to think maybe inflation is higher than 2%. I'm going to raise my inflation expectation. And that's sort of feed through perhaps to wages. I'm not talking about a wage spiral. I'm not talking about an inflationary spiral. But we are talking about the direction is probably higher in inflation expectations, not lower. And that's something central banks respond to.
4: Got one prediction from you then. Euro dollar looking for 114. Let's get a second. Spurs Villa, Sunday afternoon. You'll be there, Jordan. What are you looking for?
5: If we get anything anything close to the shock result of 1-0 against Man U, I'll be happy. No, absolutely happy.
0: Jordan, Jordan, we're talking about how many Beaver Town brev- beverages are you going to have? <laughs> That's a prediction. Uh,
5: at least a couple. At least a couple. Okay. For sure.
4: Can't drink them in the stands, though, anymore, can you, Jordan? Really? I didn't know that.
5: hey have got to go out at half-time. They're half-timing.
4: looking to change that. Are they, Jordan? I did
5: read they're looking to change that. To bring yep. the
4: beers yep. back I into see, the stands. See that. You have to exit know, at half-time, Tom. Be you have to drink really quickly and then come back <laughs> <That's> out. stupid. <laughs> which is why you see the stands are still slightly empty until about the 48th minute, 50th minute. 55 for you I'm maybe, Jordan. I'm so
0: much every day about English Jordan, football.
4: thank you. Thank Jordan you, Rochester there of 114 Nomura. 114 euro. G10FX strategist.
0: Right now, we consider Washington, and we do it with someone who is steeped, and I mean steeped, in what infrastructure can do. Captain Clark is the assistant speaker of the House, but far more, she represents the 5th District of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and is adjacent to the most successful infrastructure project ever done. Catherine Clark, I stood in Boston in abject awe and looked across the torn down Southeast Expressway at a north end I had never, ever, ever seen in my life. Can we bring that infrastructure success to the rest of America? Oh, we are going to do
6: just that. And that project, The Big Dig, shows what we can do. Not only create good jobs, improve our roads and bridges, but also reconnect communities. And we've seen that play out over and over again, that communities, especially communities of color and low-income communities, have been cut off. And so our infrastructure plan plans to do that physically and also help those who've been cut you, off by lack mm, of opportunity to be part of a, a roaring okay, economy I'll, I'll, that we're going to build.
0: Uh, Congresswoman. I'll go with that. I think that's a very, very good idea. But do you do it linked to a social program, or is today's action going to be you and Speaker Pelosi are going to de-link infrastructure and future big digs from a social agenda? Oh, we,
6: this is all about building a great economy, getting people back to work. So these are always part of one Build Back Better agenda. There's roads, there's bridges, there's broadband, there's getting the lead out of our water, and there is making investments to have the workforce of the future. We know, whether you are Warren Buffett or the local restaurants that I recently held a round table with, child care is a huge barrier okay. for getting people back Catherine, to work so wanna, this is
0: about the economy look the nation's in crisis even if you were playing baseball last night and that double play you went into was terrible <laughs> Catherine clark i want to know right now you mentioned bad water dan Kildy of flint michigan has lived bad water he's got to go out for you and speaker mm-hmm. pelosi and count the votes today Can you count the votes attaching this infrastructure bill to a $3.5 trillion social agenda of liberals? (laughs) This is the agenda
6: of the American people. This is the agenda of American business. Do we want a full recovery or do we not? These are absolutely unparalleled tracks, and they are the president's agenda built from his conversations throughout this country. So, whether you're in rural America and you can't find childcare, or you need to get the lead out of the water in our urban cities or in our suburbs. This is all part of how we address this moment of economic, racial, and climate justice. Congresswoman,
1: do you think that there will be actually a vote today in the House of Representatives on the $550 billion bipartisan plan? We are working every day to make sure that we have a path to get to the
6: vote. And I can tell you this about the Democratic caucus. We are united in behind this Build Back Better agenda. Because we know that this is what our economy needs to meet this moment of great challenge.
1: But Congresswoman, what happens if that vote is not held today? Because there are not enough votes to get on board and to agree on the build back better part of the whole package, the two part uh, issue that the Democrats would like to pass.
6: What I know for sure is that we are going to pass both parts of these. If we can do that today, that's what we're working every minute of today to make sure happens. But if it doesn't, That doesn't mean this is over. This is a commitment. This is why the American people sent Joe Biden to Washington, why we have the majorities. And there is a deep unity around making sure that we rebuild this economy, we address the urgency of climate change, and we make these critical investments in the American people so they can get back to work.
4: To be clear here, then, you don't think today is an important day?
6: Today is a critical day. It's a critical day to have the vote. I'm
4: just trying to find out, Congresswoman, because you know how this works. We have these long conversations. You read the script. We go away, and I'm still not sure if there's a vote today.
6: Well, we're still in negotiations. We want to get to yes. Everybody does. And that is what the White House is working at. That is what leadership's working at. That's what our whole caucus is working at. But whether that vote happens today, and I hope it does, this is not over if we haven't reached that point in our negotiations. Our commitment is to getting this entire agenda done, and that will happen. That is our, you know, that is what is happening because we are committed to the American people and meeting this moment of great challenge with one of great progress. But we also have a deadline today of keeping government open and i we will also deliver on that we will not allow a government shutdown yeah and we are going to take up you know go back and make sure that as your opening said we deal with this issue of the debt ceiling it is a primary responsibility We have already uh, accrued the debt. The spending is in our past. This is about moving forward. And Democrats are going to ensure that we protect the full faith and credit of the United States.
4: I have a feeling we'll be talking about this again. Representative Catherine Clark, the Assistant Speaker of the House of Representatives. Congresswoman, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Michelle's talking about Christmas in September. Let's get there, Tom. Let's get there. Christmas in September, you want to do Christmas in September? Let's do
0: Christmas in September right now. Michelle Meyer with us with Bank of America. And of course, they've got a granularity, which she helped invent out of Boston University in housing and in the American consumer. Discuss Christmas in September. Really, Michelle?
7: Yeah. Um, Yeah, you know, it's not obviously quite Christmas in September, but the idea is that we are seeing evidence that consumers are spending earlier this holiday season. Um, and you know, when you look holistically at the the aggregated Bank of America card data, September showed some real momentum, and part of that is this broadening of spend across goods, and particularly in areas like clothing, in electronics, things that are most sensitive to holiday sales, which could be a function of this pull forward of holiday spending. But you're also seeing this, this kind of mini re-engagement on the leisure side, too, which has been super encouraging. So the card data we've been following has been really quite positive right. for the consumer and making me feel pretty encouraged but, as we head into the next quarter. Yeah,
0: but everybody knows we're just pulling forward from December 23rd when I begin my shopping. Yeah. Great. Have you adjusted <laughs> your GDP view? Our theme today on September 30, no visibility Q4, no visibility Q1. Give us some visibility.
7: Yeah, well, I think we're, we're seeing just that with our high-frequency data, that we're setting up which should be a better Q4. Um, so Q3 GDP is coming in right around 4%, give or take, a, you know, a, a few tenths here. Um, but Q4, it looks like, you know, our baseline forecast has been for 6% growth. And I'm holding to that number. And the, the data that we're tracking, the high-frequency data that's inflicting higher, um, suggests we could very much succeed on that forecast for 6%. So I think the demand is there. The indications are that we're seeing this re-engagement in the economy start, which is really encouraging as COVID cases come down. The real question will be on the supply side. You know, how much capacity is there to realize the strength that we're now seeing on on demand?
1: And the flip side of that is higher prices, which we're seeing in a whole range of places, right? And I'm wondering, you know, uh, the sort of stickiness here that we're looking at going forward and the disinflationary kind of trend that people were talking about before when people are spending more for the same amount of stuff. What's your view on how that's affecting consumer sentiment and their willingness to spend?
7: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. There's all this demand out there and there's limited supplies. And unfortunately, the supply chain issues have gotten worse, not better. Um, So that's a real concern. And what that means is that there will be, you know, higher prices. They're ready, seeing, and then they will continue. And if people are buying early in the holiday season, it means that you probably don't have the same level of discounting that you've had in prior holiday seasons, especially in with low inventories. So what does that mean? Well, consumers are taking notice right look at the university of michigan survey you know people are are more discouraged because prices are high and they can't get some of the items that they're looking to purchase um so when you when you consider adding up for gdp you know you're looking at in real terms inflation adjusted terms so you could get this bigger divide where nominal really you know accelerates into the fourth quarter but real gdp maybe struggles a bit more so that's something that we're keeping an eye out for when we think about these supply constraints
1: Your specialty is the housing market. That's where you made your name. And we're watching the housing market actually uh, embody this inflationary push, possibly more than any other. The idea of 20 percent year over year gains month after month after month. How does this factor into discretionary spending to inflation more broadly at a time when Jay Powell says a lot of this is just transitory and supply chain related?
7: Well, look, I mean, I think housing is a perfect case study of this imbalance between demand and supply in the market where demand has just, you know, climbed higher in the housing market in a very constrained environment. Now, builders are responding. That's good. Inventory is picking up. Look at the new home sales report. The month supply figure there is now touching around six months. Um, so that's that's quite good, we're making progress, but we're not at a point yet where home prices are starting to cool. We're not at a point yet where you've kind of lost some of the frenzy in the market. It's still there when you look at the number of days in the market for sale for these homes. Things are moving quickly. There's also a lot more cash buyers, there's a lot more investors in the market. Yeah. Um, so so what does this mean broadly? Well, it does fuel this kind of inflation sentiment. It's one of the factors that you wanna think about when you're considering inflation expectations and how people perceive the, 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 the inflationary environment. But then also just more in a, on a nuanced view, right? It does ultimately impact the rental market, which ultimately impacts owner's equivalent rent. And that's starting to show through very, very clearly in the high frequency data. So we should anticipate that owner's equivalent rent moves up into next year, even if some of these more transitory factors that have been boosting inflation mm-hmm. wane.
0: That's great to hear, Michelle Meyer in her wheelhouse when we first met her a zillion years ago (laughs) out of BU. You know, Michelle, I wanna talk here about transitory, and it's what everybody's talking about in these two Americas, and one of them is an America flat on its back. Is a negative Mm. real wage here to stay, or is a negative real wage transitory? Well,
7: right now, it's particularly painful on a year-over-year basis because you've seen these extraordinary gains in inflation. But when you look forward, I think the wage environment is quite positive, particularly for the lower income consumer, that's going to be a lot more sensitive to moves in inflation. So I think, you know, given the incredible demand for workers that we've been seeing, particularly in the lower income part of the population, wages have been rising. And I would expect that to continue. Now, of course, yes, you have to consider the pace of wage increases relative to the pace of underlying inflation to back out that real wage number, and right now it is a bit more problematic. But I think into next year you get some cooling in some of these components where inflation has just been extraordinarily high, and meanwhile wages continue to creep up. And I think that's a favorable backdrop.
0: I I look where you know I, I look where we are, uh, Michelle. And I've got to interrupt the train of thought here when we see yen go out through 112 onto 113. Dovetail Bank of America foreign exchange analysis into your great American economic view. How does strong dollar change your calculus?
7: Well, look, I mean, the strong dollar presumably is a function of the fact that it's a strong economy. So I would argue that the dollar strength that we've seen has not been unwarranted um, or unsupported by the fundamentals in the U.S. economy. Um, So, but but yes, of course, when you you think about the FX moves, you think about the balance of trade, you think about the cost of goods, and all of those things are obviously going to be impacted negatively when you have a strengthening of the dollar. But I would argue, and very much with our FX judges believe that the move in the dollar is justified, given what you're seeing in the U.S. economy.
1: So uh, before we let you go, Michelle, we've heard a lot of Fed speak over the past couple of days. It will continue today. Uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell on the Hill. Is there anything that he has said over the past couple of sessions that we've heard from him that's been of interest? So,
7: you know, you kind of always have to read between the lines. And I think that there's been a real emphasis on the supply side of the economy. Um, Because it seems like there's this discussion within the Fed over whether or not all this demand side policy, very accommodative monetary policy that stimulates the demand side is the right prescription if you're really facing a bigger supply side shock. So they're trying to figure out how permanent the supply side issues are. Um, And one of the ways to gauge that, frankly, is just to go back to inflation, what you talked about before, Lisa, particularly long run inflation expectations. Um, the extent to which long-run inflation expectations move up will tell the Fed that they have a more permanent constraint on the supply side, and that will prompt them to pivot when it comes to dovish monetary policy. They're not seeing it yet, but they're obviously very, very, very keen uh, to focus on this topic and looking at it very carefully, which makes a lot of sense.
4: Michelle, happy Christmas to you, <laughs> to the family. Thank you. <laughs> happy holidays. I love that note. Thanks, I really guys. do. Michelle Meyer, thank She's you so much. She's
0: dragging her kids out to see Santa Is October she lying to 5? them,
4: pretending that it's October 5th so. yeah from Bank of America, the wonderful Michelle
0: Martin. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and, of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.